Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Welcome back to the Sand Hills Podcast. We're excited to start a new series now. We just wrapped up that mini-series that we were doing to kick off uh, our relaunch of the podcast. We just finished the Women in Ministry with a conversation with Dr. Seth Scott about gender dysphoria. If you haven't seen it, we encourage you to check that out. But now we continue on into a new mini-series on evangelism. And to kick that off, we wanted to look into the historical perspectives of what it means to be a Christian evangelist and missionary. And so to have that conversation, we brought in Dr. Edward Smither. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It's good to be here. You teach uh, at Columbia International University, is that correct? That's right. And you're the Dean of Intercultural Studies, and you teach a fabulous class that I took called History of Global Christianity, correct? That's right. It is. That was a great class. I absolutely loved it because it really highlights the perspective that the whole history of our faith and our religion is founded on missions Mm -hmm. and evangelism, not just these are our tenets. Let's hold to it. Make sure we do it right. Stick in our place and, and, and just keep going, but let's go out and spread this news Mm -hmm. is incredible. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And I think that leads into a really important question. What's the difference between an evangelist and a missionary, or is there not much of a difference? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, historically, traditionally, we would often say an evangelist is someone who shares the gospel uh, within their own culture, <clears throat> and uh, a missionary is one who cross cultures, uh, crosses cultures, language, and so forth to share the gospel. Um, I'm not really satisfied with that definition. I mean, obviously, an evangelist is someone who shares good news, mm. um, and the good news that that Christ has died and Christ is risen. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously Psalm 96 tells us to declare God's glory among the nations. And so, um, you know, God said to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so the scope of sharing the good news has always been all of the nations. Um, but when I think about the way I define Christian mission, it's 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 super, super sophisticated. Mm. Mission is crossing boundaries between the people of faith and the not yet people of faith. Um, then we do that among all peoples, among all nations. Mm. Um, and indeed in the work of mission, we will often learn another language or learn other cultures. That's what we train people for at, at, at CIU. Um, but the greatest boundary that we'll ever cross is a boundary of faith. And mm. so, so I know, um, uh, us Americans, um, that look like me and sound like me that I grew up with, um, that I have less in common with on, on spiritual matters than Muslim friends who grew mm. up in North Africa uh, because of worldview and because of faith. And so, um, so I mean, to, to make a, to answer a short question, question long, um, I really would say that, that there, there's no clear distinction. Obviously evangelism, sharing the gospel is a central non-negotiable component of mission. Mm. Um, but, the context of mission today, I mean, especially when you have, you know, international business people or students or refugees or other immigrants living on your street, um, you know, 
mission is local and mission is global. Mm. So I, I kind of put it all together in, in the work of mission. Yeah, so it doesn't just have mm-hmm. to be that you go out to some country mm-hmm. and have this massive trip and fundraising campaign, you know, to go out and be on the mission field. It could be as simple as just, I know I have a neighbor that doesn't follow the Lord, whether they, like you said, you know, look and sound and talk like me culturally, or whether they don't, that's not really the reason why I'd go meet them for missions. It's because I don't think that they're following the Lord and I want them to know this good news. Right, right. And, and, I mean, especially in a world today, uh, literally today, one in 78 people in the world are internally or externally displaced. Um, so we have more than wow. 30 million refugees in the world. Um, you know, in the United States, we have a million international students, millions of others that come here for, millions of others who come here for business. Um, but on my street, I have neighbors from South Carolina who don't know the Lord. And I have neighbors mm-hmm. from Korea and Japan who don't know the Lord. And so the, this is my street and these are my neighbors. And this is, you know, community mission that's also global. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, actually in class this morning, we were just talking about the realities of global migration. And within the last year in our city, 300 people from Afghanistan arrived here. And so the you know the admonition from our Lord is to go and make disciples of all nations, but the go there um, that might be a mile or that might be ten thousand miles yeah. of going. It's not so much the the geographic distance, but it's the intentionality to to cross those boundaries. And right. we really do have a great opportunity, you know, in the world today to um, to go to the nations by welcoming the nations that, that are, are coming to us. Mm. And that reminds me so much of, of the beauty in scripture where sometimes you see Jesus, he says, go and sell everything and follow me. And to some people, he just says, follow me. Mm -hmm. And so there's not always this, it has to look like this. It has to be like this, but rather a, are you going to obey how the spirit leads? Mm -hmm. You know, whether that is like you said, you know, one mile or 1000 miles, Mm -hmm. Well, that's up to the spirit, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you being obedient to that. That is a beautiful reminder. Who was the first missionary? I, I get this question when I think about this or bring up the topic and people say, well, you know, who was the first missionary? Who was the first evangelist in history? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, when we look at the early church and when we look at the apostles and, and after that period, <clears throat> excuse me, um, there's um. There's a great quote from um, Stephen Neal, um, who was a historian of mission, who said, you know, the the real fascinating thing about the spread of the gospel in the early centuries was um, the anonymous missionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, in, um, in the first three, four hundred years of the church, in, in how the church remembered missionaries and evangelists, there are only three um, given by name. Um and so there's a there's a there's a letter called the the anonymous epistle to Diognetus that's second century, and it talks about Christians living in you know serving in the marketplace and and essentially being salt and light, doing mm-hmm. honest business and having a witness, um, and and so we don't really see missionary as a professional vocation. Um, we don't really see that until about the 16th century. Wow, <clears throat> and so. Um, you know, so Stephen Neal and Ada von Harnack talked about the, the informal anonymous, uh, missionaries, um, that, 
did not self-identify, you know, as a full-time vocational evangelist. Um, so when I teach about this, um, you know, I will mention, um, I mean, mo- most of the people we talk about are kind of hyphenated. So someone like Justin Martyr mm-hmm. in the in the second century, who was a philosopher by training and a teacher. But when we look at, at his mission to um, to other Roman philosophers and pagans and Jews, um, he was very much, he was living in, in multicultural places like Rome and Ephesus. Um, he himself grew up in, in Samaria near, near Jerusalem. Um, but he was a, t- a philosophy teacher in, in Ephesus and Rome, and he basically in, engaged in mission. Mm. But, but if we asked him, what do you do for a living? He would have said, I'm a teacher, I'm a philosopher. Right. Um, and so, so we see people like, um, you know, um, like Justin, who are kind of philosopher missionaries, um, um, others that are monks who become missionaries, they kind of have that hyphenated status, mm-hmm. bishops who are missionaries. And so um, so there are very few. I mean, if, if we want to look at one of the earliest, kind of just this seems to be all that they did. I mean, someone like um, Gregory the Enlightener who went to Armenia and um, and baptized the king of Armenia in the year 301, with the intentional mission of I'm going to these people. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he seems to be someone. Um, the church uh, historian Eusebius talked about itinerant evangelist and others. Um, uh, so does Origen, uh, the the Egyptian church father Origen. Um, but they never give any names. It's just they're they're just kind of wandering evangelists. Um, but I think what's what's more significant is, I think. Um, Many Christians, if not every early Christian, um, understood that mission was part of their obligation and, and part of their life and their worship. Mm, simply as a natural outflowing. Mm-hmm. And they didn't think, oh, I need to change you know, everything about what I say that I am because mm-hmm. everything about who I am is being changed by the Spirit and I just need to walk in that. Yeah. And it's it, naturally going to outpour. Yeah, and when we look at like the two of the biggest churches in the Western Roman Empire, the church communities and cities, Rome and Carthage, um, we have no idea who started those churches. Mm. So we, 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 we get excited. You know, we talk about who's the founding, you know, pastor, church planter. Sometimes we put those on signs in churches. Right. But, but, you know, the two largest church communities in the ancient world in the Western Roman Empire, they have anonymous origins. Mm. So. It's just a community of faith. Mm-hmm. That is beautiful. How, how far did missionaries get in the first 200 years so we know saying the word missionary but for them they would have just been going you know doing doing what jesus said to Mm -hmm. do i'm just going and making disciples you know how far did christianity get in those first 200 years well in terms of written records you know the documents are a little um uncertain um but uh but we do know that there was a christian community in india by Mm. the sec by the third century um, both the um, Egyptian philosopher Pantanas uh, was a missionary in India, and um, and probably Jesus' dis- disciple Thomas. Wow! Um, and so, um, though the the documents of early Christianity are not so reliable about Thomas being in India, um, when the Portuguese came to India in 1500, they found 100,000 Syriac speaking. Christians who said that <laughs> we are from the Church of Thomas, 
and the Apostle Thomas founded our church. And so there's an oral history, and wow. there's other archaeological evidence. Um, um, so, I mean, with global trade in the early centuries, you, you could buy Chinese silk in the Mediterranean in the first three centuries. Um, and so, you know, we don't have evidence of Christianity in China until the seventh century, but um, but who knows? Part of it is wow. we, we just we just don't know. But we, we do know um, about India, and even um, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, Bishop John of Persia uh, represented the churches of uh, Persia and India in signing the Nicene Creed. So wow. the fact that there is an established church with a hierarchy, with a bishop sent to um, speak about this theological issue tells mm-hmm. us that there had been Christian communities for for some time in Very India and Persia. Mm-hmm. Wow! So the scope of the Greek, you know, Alexander's empire, and then the Roman Empire coming after that play a huge concept in this because of systems of navigation, mm-hmm. crossing, you know, paved routes or having shipping routes mm-hmm. set up, going all the way to India. You know, that's as far as Alexander had gotten. So contact with those peoples across North Africa, mm-hmm. um, down mm-hmm. to present-day Ethiopia roundabouts, mm-hmm. and then up through you know Gaul, you know mm-hmm. France, Spain, mm-hmm. that whole area would have the opposite of you know India. If you look at India being to the far east, what about would England have been considered the far you know north on the opposite spectrum? Well, the end of the Roman Empire was Hadrian's Wall in, mm-hmm. in England. Um, you know, in the fifth century, St. Patrick talked about being called to the ends of the earth. And so the farthest west that they knew of was Ireland. And so mm. he believed that was the the geographical ends of the earth for him. And when did he get to Ireland? Um, about 430, 432. Okay, mm-hmm. so a little bit past that 200 marker. Mm-hmm. But still, very, I mean, that is fascinating that within those 400 years, you've gotten to the edges of what they would have understood to be the known world. world. Mm-hmm. Wow. And all by foot and very, you know, what we would call simple sailing mechanisms. Mm-hmm. That is incredible, man. Like you just think about this and the elements of faith that have to go into that to leave everything, you know, that's hard for us today. And we can still have instant communication with people on the other side of the world. And for them, they're, they're literally taking everything and saying, this is my mission. Mm-hmm. This is what I'll be doing. Why did it focus so centrally in Europe after that? And, and was there a stagnation in missions at that time? Or did it just continue with the same fervor? Well, I think whenever things get institutionalized and established, um, uh, I mean, obviously the fact that the, the Bishop of Rome kind of becomes the first among equals among bishops and, and, and will become the, the, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church by, you know, by the sixth century, um, there is a there's a seat of power there. Um, in some ways, that's, um, you know, uh, it was the Bishop of Rome who set apart St. Patrick as a missionary bishop to the Irish. Mm. And that's a good thing. Um, there was later um, um, the the Pope set apart um, Saint Boniface to be a missionary bishop to the the, the Frisians or the Northern Germanic peoples. Um, mm. That was good too. Um, you know, in the seventh century, there was the the Synod of Whitby, where uh, basically a Roman Catholic kind of a polity and culture and style prevailed upon the Celtic and the English Church, um, and so they kind of 
you know, had their way in terms of what would be the, the culture and style of the church. And so, um, you know, so that's not a good thing. And so, um, you know, we, we, I think probably the establishment of Christianity in Europe and with, um, um, you know, with the whole concept of there being a state church mm. that the, you know, the Roman Catholic church would be the state church of, of, of nations later, the, you know, the Anglican church, church of England being the state church of England. And of course, Presbyterians got their start as the state church of Scotland. So, right. um, so that's, um, I think that, that lended itself maybe more toward uh, just being focused on their own nation. Uh, but we, but we still see examples of, uh, you know, of missionaries going out and even right. sometimes from, from the, from the West and also even from the East, from Constantinople, missionaries are even being sent out by political leaders. Mm. So, so between roundabouts 700 AD and 1000 is really when it started to become more institutionalized. I, I think overall, yeah, I think overall. Um, but I mean, you, you, you see, you know, you see some examples. You, we don't see as much Bible translation and expansion of the church um, at this point, but you, you know, you see people like Cyril and Methodius going to the Slavic peoples in the ninth century. Um, um, you see the movement, um, you know, from Constantinople into um, into Kivrus and what's now Ukraine and Russia and right. and, and all of that. Um, um, so, and, and even you know, even in the eleventh and twelfth century in Iceland, they were the first country in the world to have a parliament. And they kind of, after kind of as a parliament, decided that they would adopt Christianity as, as a vote. national religion. <laughs> yeah. So well, that's incredible. And I had just listened to a podcast recently on on the rest is history with maybe you've heard from Tom Holland. He wrote Dominion. Oh yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dominic Sandbrook, and they were discussing um, Marco Polo and him going out and being a representative of not only you know the west in general but also as the christian world mm-hmm. to the mongol empire mm-hmm. and i was just like i thought he was just a game you played in the pool like this you know <laughs> i didn't realize that he was doing things like this and and going out and being a representative one of the the things that i've heard a lot when i talk to sometimes non-believers or even believers and they talk about the concept of uh proselytizing evangelism that idea and the charge that they'll bring up, which I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, really seemed to happen a lot between 1000 and 1800, you know, for about 800 years there of when missionaries go out, it's, you will look like us, you will sound like us, you'll worship like us versus integrating into communities Mm -hmm. naturally. Mm -hmm. Is that something that is changing now in the in the idea of missions or is that something that we're still struggling with of how do we integrate into cultures versus bring in our culture on top of christianity yeah well even in that period from a thousand to 1800 you you will have very good examples you mentioned the mongols earlier so um you know franciscan missionary monks went and lived among the mongols they lived mongols they lived a nomadic lifestyle and and strive to be contextual. Um, mm. um, but you would also see, um, you know, you know, even, um, Protestant missionaries that would go and yeah, there'd be an emphasis on outward forms of dress and 
worship styles that there was a, there was a kind of a, of the West is best. Europe is superior in terms of style and, um, um, but yeah, I, th- I, I think we've really gotten past that. We realize that every, everyone has a culture and, um, and cultural change happens because it's submitted to, um, the word of God. And so mm. even, even U S American culture is, needs to be critiqued by scripture and so you, you, you know, we start to see our own blind spots when we live outside of our own culture. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that um, uh, cross-cultural workers today going to the world are really striving to be what we call contextual and, and having church being indigenous in terms of being led by local leaders and the culture and the style, um, even in, in the way worship is done, um, even in the um, the structures of church, um, and even how we think about theology, that's, mm. that also needs to be contextual. So we've, I think we've made a lot of strides, especially in the 20th century, about that. One of the famous things that I remember from our class is the Chinese church early on choosing different names mm-hmm. uh, for Father, Son, Holy Spirit that would match their cultural understanding of those things and the missionaries seemed very comfortable with that that they said okay if that's how you want to understand it so long as it's you're using that word in light of scripture not in light of your culture and one of the things that christianity is famous for is taking things like christmas and like easter and transforming them into christian holidays uh and that that now when you say easter the perception isn't about you know a a festival a pagan festival it's about jesus you know rising from the grave and you think Christmas, you don't think of the Germanic, you know, ideas and practices of bringing a tree into the house. You think of the birth of the Son of God. Uh, what element of that, when does that become inappropriate to bring too much of a culture into something? And when is it appropriate to say, yeah, that's fine. Like, we can keep working with this. You know, it's always been tricky. I mean, if we go back to the um, Augustine of Canterbury, who was sent by Pope Gregory the Great, um in the late sixth century to evangelize England, um, uh, Augustine writes back to Gregory and asks, you know, there are pagan temples here. Should we just tear them down or should we transform them into houses of worship? And Gregory said, if it's a good building and you've cleansed it from idols, then use it for a place of worship. Mm. Um, and there was like a, there was like a, 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 a cattle festival where they sacrificed a cow and it, and and why not let that be transformed into a feast of thanksgiving and so um so it's the idea of transforming existing forms um, into other things um so that sounds really good um but it's interesting when the english missionary monk boniface who who grew up in that tradition when he went cross-culturally to germanic peoples um he just kind of tore down pagan structures of worship. I think he, mm. I think maybe he had a different view of how uh, potentially syncretism was coming in. And so, I mean, think about it today. If, you know, if we went down to the Gervais Street Mosque and shared the gospel with everyone and everyone believed and we said, well, you've got a nice mosque here. Let's just use this as your church. Um, would someone be able to disassociate the symbols and the experience of being in that mosque with Christian worship. And so, um, it's, that's a tricky thing that that we don't really have a, have a clear answer on, or even some, 
houses of worship, I mean, are quite, you know, um, in Asia, there are shrine prostitutes and things. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I, I mean, there it's, it's, I think it's just one of those things by the spirits leading and through the reading of scripture and thinking about what does it look like and mean to be a Christian, you know, in, you know, in my context that, that you make those decisions. And, um, I don't think there's there's an easy formula for that. Yeah, that is one of the beautiful things and very tricky things mm-hmm. is that you can't just say, well, this is the rule. This is what we do. Let's let's do that. It's a reliance on the spirit to guide and, and to, to you have to put your trust in him, right? You have to put your faith in him and say, guide me to the best of my ability. And I think oftentimes we can look at uh, the early church, early missionaries. I mean, even all the way through you know, the enlightenment period. And we can really judge them very harshly based off of our perceptions and understandings where our, even then uh, we're going through this in our Bible study of in Esther, it's so easy to judge her and her decisions and say, well, is she compromising? Is she a coward or is she doing this or that? And honestly, it seems like she's just trying to do the best she can, you know, to the best of her ability. And oftentimes it's the same with all of us <laughs> and in these missionaries, no less is, trying to do the best they can for God and for the kingdom and how that plays out. Well, that's, he's still sovereign and it's hard to rest yeah. in that. Well, and, and, and cross-cultural missionaries will make mistakes and, and for pe- people wanting to go serve the Lord today, they, they will make mistakes. Um, someone said that that's, that's why actually we translate scripture into the heart languages of the world because in time, um, having scripture in the heart language of people will, will make up for the mistakes that missionaries mm. might've made about a Christian looks like this culturally or behaves sure. this way or does church this way. So how close are we to that, to the every tribe, tongue and nation mentality of getting scripture translated? Yeah, I think uh, the last time I checked um, there, there's a, there's been a big push toward 2025 of getting uh, scripture started in every language. The last I had checked is that, um, that there was a start on, I think, all but about 1,500 remaining languages in the world. And so there were roughly 7,000 languages in the world. And so um, so all but about 1,500 of them, wow. um, um, you know, lack, um, you know, if not, don't have a word of, of Scripture in their, in their language. Mm. Um, you know, we have to realize, too, that um, some people speak two or three languages, and so they right. might be being reached in a trade language. And um, but certainly, the the value is that we that that everyone would be able to have scripture in their mother tongue, in their heart language. That is incredible. So we're about five sevenths of the way there. Two thousand years later, that is incredible. And the technology we have now mm-hmm. to hasten that process. Mm-hmm. You know how wonderful that is that we can redeem things like that and use them for the glory of God. One of the things you mentioned earlier that I want to come back to is Justin Martyr. Mm -hmm. Is he who we get the term martyrdom from? Well, the word martyr, it's, it's the Greek word, martyreo, which means to witness. Um, And then by the second century and into the third, martyrdom was becoming such a thing that the word martyr witness basically becomes one who witnesses by laying down their life mm. by dying and so um so yeah it was ju- it would be like justin the martyr mm. um sometimes i get i get uh, papers from students writing on justin martyr and they 
they think it's his last name and they said you know martyr grew up here and there it was like that was his title not his right not not his name so um but yeah that's where that's where that comes from i think i might have made that mistake in a oh, way, right? okay, okay. <laughs> but that is incredible and that but that idea that you would become synonymous with your mission with your witness with how you lived and ended your life for the sake of the gospel that is itself a testimony to the life that justin was living mm -hmm. that he would be known as the witness um who was the first martyr well i mean i think in the in the early church we often look at stephen mm. in, in you know acts chapter um six and seven yeah. who was who Acts seven who was you know, we see him in six and then he's martyred in, in seven. And, um, and then in Acts eight, we start to see really the, you know, the growth of the church and the expansion of the church, uh, through suffering. So, mm. and Stephen, the very famous individual who's there is Saul mm -hmm. who will become Paul, yeah. who is seen as the most prolific evangelist of all time. Mm -hmm. And, you see in that one story in scripture, the power of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, things that I learned in ICS classes was that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. Could you kind of tease that out a little bit? What does that mm -hmm. mean? What, what are the patterns we see to make that true throughout Christian history? Yeah. And you're, that's a quote from Tertullian um, in his apology that he wrote, his apologetic that he wrote around the year two or three, you know, he said the more he was writing to the Roman governor of Carthage and he said, you know, the more often you mow us down, <clears throat> the the more often we spring up the blood of the martyrs is seed. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, on one hand, um, you know, we don't want to romanticize suffering because mm. it, it hurts to suffer. And when people die, it's ugly. Um, but, um, but I think in the Roman context, um, you know, Roman religion was interested in virtue um, and morality and things. And so that the fact that Christians would die for something that they believed in was was compelling to Romans. Um, at the same time, um, I, I wrote a book called Christian Martyrdom, and I looked at a lot of the trials and what Christians said when they were on trial, and they would you know, they would testify, they would witness, I am a Christian. Mm -hmm. And even too, because um, Christians were trained in, in the Apostles' Creed and the other, you know, and later the Nicene Creed, um, even in their, in their defense of their faith, they would, um, you know, they would kind of get creedal and, and talk about, I worship the maker of heaven and earth. Mm. I worship Christ who's crucified, buried, and risen, and things from scripture that come into, so they were discipled and trained. They had, they had, uh, digested the, the, the creed of what, you know, obviously what they believed. Mm. Um, and they gave a verbal witness literally when they were on trial. It's like a verbal tract Yeah, that they just like, I've yeah. got all, I've got tons of these in my pocket mm -hmm. and I'm just ready to hand them out. So mm -hmm. they would just start reciting yeah. the truth that they believed. Yeah. And, and, the, you know, and, and the word witness, um, you know, that we have in the New Testament is a courtroom witness, literally. And so it, it makes a lot of sense that as people were standing trial um, and witnessing to their faith, they, they would um, lean on what they had been trained in. So, And you look at this concept 
of laying down your life. Uh, I believe it was Jesus who said, when you testify before governments, you know, rely on the spirit mm-hmm. and he'll make your words clear right. for, you know, what to say. Mm-hmm. So he obviously gets it. He knows what's going on uh, as he does. And then you see Paul have the mentality of, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. You see this absolute adoration of Christ that, man, my whole life is about sharing him. And if you kill me, great, I get to be with him. You know, and that's not that Paul is begging to be, you know, killed. He testifies to the fact that he wants to be with other believers and that he wants to continue on with them. And that is his hope and his prayer is to be with him. But his assurance of, I'm so in love with Christ that, you know, unite me with him if you must. You know, great. And I was listening to Francis Chan recently, who was uh, sharing a story of some Korean missionaries he knew who had been captured by the Taliban. And mm. their their concept, their mindset, even amidst the suffering, which was very real, and they talked about that, but this concept of like, oh, no, don't make me see my Savior. <laughs> you know, like, mm. that's the thing that every Christian longs for is union with the Savior. Mm-hmm. And that mentality of detaching completely from the world and living completely for Christ, and then being united with Christ. And so entering those moments fearlessly and boldly in faith and in testimony, that is such a powerful message. And it's so consistent throughout Christian history. Like, we haven't stopped being martyred. Mm-hmm. Um, who was, so we talked about the first martyr, who most recently has been, you know, very famously martyred for the sake of the gospel in the sense that there where people are looking at this going that's different and of course there are just like you said those who founded the church and we never know their name but their faithfulness is something that we will praise god for today there are so many that we'll never know the names of who who do so so boldly and anonymously for the sake of the gospel um, yeah well in 2015 um isis uh filmed the the martyrdom the execution it was it was 21 christians 20 from um from egypt they were coptic christians and they were working in libya and they were captured um for 45 days and 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 tortured and then and then they 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 uh you know filmed the whole thing and they Mm -hmm. they cut their throats and they killed them and so um so they and and when they were dying they said rabbi yesua they said lord jesus and they they said the name of jesus mm. um they would not deny their faith they were you know they were being challenged to deny their faith and to convert to islam in captivity and they wouldn't do it um and in fact they were the, the coptic church in egypt is a, is an oral church and so the whole church service the liturgy is sung and so they would sing the scriptures and mm. and the prayers and liturgy um in their you know, in their space where they were, were captured. Um, and they gave a verbal witness and, um, millions and millions of people around the world saw this. It was brutal. It was barbaric, but they stood fast for what they believed. And, Mm. um, so that was, um, that was 2015, just not long ago. It is the mystery of God working amidst such things that are still for his glory. And, and who knows how many people have been reached by that, that they'll never know till they are united in, in glory to, to thank them and, and to see them. And um, in a podcast recently, I heard the, the quote that's so good of, oftentimes it's the mystery of God working in broken places and in broken situations. And the brokenness of murder and, and suffering and torture but then the mystery of God working in that of 
how powerful of a testimony that is, is breathtaking. And I think oftentimes, unfortunately, in our American context specifically, we can forget just how global this is and just how much of a cost our brothers and sisters pay on a daily basis, you know, whether that be from China to Cuba of, you know, wherever they are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And we can often become very forgetful of them and of our brothers and sisters. What's a way that you would encourage people listening to this to support those brothers and sisters who are who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of mission and evangelism? Sure, sure. We'll, we'll certainly pray for them. Um, and I think uh, as we have opportunities, um, uh, you know, to advocate on their behalf. And so if, um, if you learn of someone, um, I was living in North Africa and there was an, an older Christian man that had been put in jail for his faith. Um, and actually he was, uh, they were, this country was breaking its own laws by uh, imprisoning someone of his age. Mm. Um, but uh, people spread the word and um, that uh, the embassy of that country in the United States um, got 1,500 um, messages protesting the treatment wow. of this person. And even um, a former president of the United States made a call to the ambassador of that country and said, can you help me understand what's going on here? So there's some appealing to human rights. Mm. Um, um, and so, so certainly advocacy is part of that. Um, and, um, you know, in the case of the, um, the, the martyrs that were killed in Egypt, I know, um, a friend of mine who leads a ministry in the Middle East, um, they sent money to the families of, of those that were mm. martyred. And so, so those are, you know, a few things that can be done. That is amazing. Cause that reminds me, you worked on a, a book mission in the way of Daniel mm -hmm. and that idea of governments even being a part of this and mm -hmm. Christians influencing governments mm -hmm. and systems of power. How does that play into missions and evangelism? You just mentioned a former president is getting in contact with another foreign country. All of this stemming from believers standing up and advocating for a brother in Christ mm -hmm. and that having the trickle effect of a Christian speaking into the air of ear of one of the most powerful figures in the world to have a conversation about this. How does Daniel inform that and how does yeah. that inform our concept of missions? Well, of course, Daniel is, you know, he wasn't a priest or a missionary. He was a government administrator, um, displaced. He was, he was a refugee, um, displaced against his will living in another country, but in the but in the in the admonition of, of Jeremiah twenty nine, he was bringing uh, blessing to the city where he lived, peace mm. to the city, um, and so um, I think that's a great model for um, for non religious professionals to see their role um, uh, if they're in the marketplace or in government or, or in different spheres outside of the church, um, they can have a witness. Um, but yeah, there's there's a good bit. Um, that, you know, there, we, we have, we have quite a number of committed Christians in the U S government who, um, I think about Senator Langford from Oklahoma, who's been an advocate for the suffering church. Mm. Um, and, um, when, uh, pastor Andrew Brunson was in prison in Turkey, uh, for three years, Langford would regularly bring that, say his name and bring his case, um, you know, in speeches at the, in the floor of the Senate, um, there, I'm aware of a couple of 
of one uh, retired politician who does a lot of religious freedom advocacy around the world. Mm. And so, so he still has, he's still known and he will travel and go to different countries and will talk to governments about, um, you know, the case of, of people. And so, um, but I think, I think sometimes we, we forget that, um, you know, that political leaders in our own country uh, and around the world, they are people who need the Lord too. Mm. Um, and so um, one organ- ministry I used to work with, um, they had, uh, it was called the Christian Embassy, where they they had a ministry to diplomats and people in government wow. um, who, who, need, who need the Lord, but also these are obviously people of influence. Um, and so, um, so yeah, that, that's... Um, that is um, that's very important too. And culturally, that can become so difficult for us because we live in a time that's very us versus them mentality and politics first, and and the other side wants to destroy you. You know, both saying that to one another, and what can be really difficult then is looking at scripture and seeing the words "honor the emperor," mm-hmm. and you know, whoever you are, be a voice of influence for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel and for Christ. And let that be your founding thing about you, you know, be the witness, you know, let people know you as the Christian first and everything else second. And that is, uh, is, is that something that you guys really break down in mission in the way of Daniel of how to balance and live that out today? Um, yeah, I mean, um, just really, really thinking about, you know, where I think that the key is, is where God has placed us that, that that not every Christian will be a missionary, mm. uh, but every Christian ought to be a missionary Christian. Mm. And, um, and so if, if we're working in government or education or in business or in healthcare, um, that, that, you know, we witness unto the Lord through excellent work, through godliness, through integrity and by opening our mouths. And so, mm. um, so I, recently went to see a doctor, um, good doctor, gave me a good exam and everything. Um, just, and, um, and then he said, can I pray with you before we go? Mm. And so that's kind of a challenging of, of two worlds there of, of the medical and the scientific, but also, um, of prayer. So he's a, a praying doctor. Mm. And I, I said, of course. And, and so that's, and I, and I, I think he does that with all of his patients. Wow. He asks permission to pray with them, um, before and, uh, and so that's that's a good thing to do. I think mission in the way of Daniel just challenges us that um, the work of mission and ministry and evangelism is not just for religious professionals. It's not mm. just for pastors and missionaries. And in a lot of ways, um, uh, you know, some people that are professionals they're actually better placed and have greater opportunities than a pastor or missionary. Yeah, very will. true. Very true. And. Um, and, and so to see themselves as part of God's mission in those spheres is important. And we'll have a link to that book in our okay. show notes for those of you who will be interested in checking that out. Um, it just sounds like an incredible resource to dig into and to encourage our lives and to answer some practical questions and to see those things. So I want to, uh, one of the things I want to do here really quickly, uh, we've never done this on the show before. It'll be kind of a rapid fire because one of the things that I absolutely love is getting on Wikipedia digs where I just like, oh, I want to hear about, you know, Justin Martyr. So I'll look up a Wikipedia and then I'm in there for an hour, you know, just mm-hmm. scrolling through all this stuff and information. Uh, don't use it on your papers if you're submitting them to Dr. Smither. Uh, 
Not a scholarly source. Yeah, not a scholarly source. But I know that some of you watching will want to look up these names, dig into them. So what I want to do real quick is I'm going to ask you who your favorite missionary evangelist, you know, or martyr, you can choose from any of those. Um, Obviously, they all kind of cross into each other. From certain eras in history. And you just got to shoot out a name. And uh, then you guys who are interested can just dive into those all all across Wikipedia and the internet. Okay, so first one. Let me get my notes here. First one, uh, 180 to 480, who comes to mind? Uh, Irenaeus. Irenaeus. 500 to 1,000. Cyril and Methodius. 1,000 to 1,500. Uh, Raymond Lull. Okay, little shorter time span, 1,500 to 1,850. Um, Nicholas von Zinzendorf. That's a fun name. <laughs> uh, I'm going to tighten this one up a little bit. I'm going to uh, 1850 to 1900. Um, Samuel Zwamer. Ooh, he's good. And that's uh, the Zwamer Center is run by Dr. Castor. Mm-hmm. The Zwamer Center for Muslim Studies at CIU. Phenomenal resource. You guys definitely check that out. Okay, so then 1900 to 1930. 1900 to 1930. Um. Robbie C.T. Studd. 1930 to 1950. Um, well, it's getting tighter. Um, you know what? I might I have to think through this for a second, but I'm thinking of... Um, oh, I'm blanking on his name, actually. I can fill this one in because I've got someone I'm thinking of. Uh, give me yours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, yeah. Okay. I sure. just I just love yeah. his mission during the Second World War in Germany is incredible. An amazing story. Highly recommend it. I was going to say E. Stanley Jones, but I have to make sure that he was in that period. But he was definitely 20, 20th century. Now we've got two. There you go. Finally, 1950 to today. Wow. Um, I think, I think Kenneth Craig, Mm. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Craig, when I haven't heard his name and this is now in the time span where it's, you know, very recent history. What did he do? Sure. Um, Kenneth Craig died, um, a few years ago, but he was, he was an Anglican bishop serving in Jerusalem and Beirut and Nigeria and Egypt, um, who was one of the world's leading experts on the text of the Quran. So he was a, wow. an Islamic scholar, but a, an Anglican priest and bishop um, to the point that Muslim scholars would come and talk to him about his wow. interpretations of the Quran. So he <laughs> so he knew Islam better than most Muslim scholars. Um, and he really showed us a way of dialoguing between Muslims and Christians Um with a deep awareness and a deep understanding of, 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 of Islam and, uh, and building bridges. So that's incredible. So we don't have to be a scholar like that, but I think he teaches us that it's, it's, it's good to know something. We, we don't like it when people malign or twist what we believe or, mm. or kind of half heartedly straw um, man arguments and yeah. things like that. So he, he definitely, um, you know, approached Islam and, and Muslims with a, with a deep, understanding of um uh, you know of their faith wow that's incredible man i'm happy i asked because that's that's an amazing story okay so as we wrap up this has been an incredible conversation on on the history of missions the focus of it the heart of it 
how it's been the same and how it's changed and how, you know, in a way we walk in some beautiful traditions from someone like Thomas, even, uh, all the way through to, to Bonhoeffer and those who are in our own context and age that we can look to very clearly. What's something that you would say to every Christian listening and how they can engage in missions and evangelism? Well, there's a man who mentors me, and he's a church planter and church planting coach, and his prayer is that everyone in every church would pray for and be open to sharing their faith with their family and the people that they work with and their neighbors. Mm. So if every Christian did that, um, would we even need professional missionaries? Yeah. I mean, I I think we do, but... But for um, for every Christian, in a sense, to 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 be on mission, to to be equipped, to to know how to share their faith, um, to be present in people's lives and and available, so and praying for them. Mm. Always be ready to give an account for the hope that you have within you, as Scripture mm-hmm. says. Yeah. And often we can just punt that to professionals, quote mm-hmm. unquote, um, mm-hmm. when in reality we're called to be the ones to do it ourselves as well. Right. Thank you so much for this conversation. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in. Again, the link to Mission in the Way of Daniel will be in the show notes. Uh, We encourage you guys to check that out, uh, to challenge yourselves to pray about these topics and and to see how the Lord could be leading you to engage in missions in your own context. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 